From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we are talking about risk reduction. First, we'll talk to a researcher who wants to know how to get people who are at risk of skin cancer to stay out of the sun. And then we'll chat with a scientist who believes a simple drop of medicine under the tongue could protect children who have peanut allergies. The population science psychologist and the pediatric allergist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The way most people find out they are at risk of skin cancer is that they get skin cancer. And the way that most people find out that they're allergic to peanuts is that they have an allergic reaction. But what if it didn't have to be that way? On today's program, we are talking about reducing risk, about how genetic testing is giving us the ability to make better decisions about our lifestyles before disease happens, and about how new advancements in medications are giving us the ability to lower the risk of dangerous allergic reactions before they happen. So what we're really talking about is the future of healthcare, a future of proactive rather than reactive medicine. Joining us today in studio is Lisa Aspinwall. Her research focuses on the ways in which people plan, control, and revise their actions related to disease risk and chronic illness, with a particular interest in how people think about their genetic selves. Her latest study examines the ways in which genetic testing and counseling can help people make better lifestyle decisions when it comes to melanoma. Lisa Aspinwall, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you very much. And also joining us on the line from the University of North Carolina is Edwin Kim. His team's study of the effects of long-term sublingual immunotherapy on children with peanut allergies was recently published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Edwin Kim, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. If you spend a lot of time in the sun, it's probably no surprise that you are at greater risk of the skin cancer known as melanoma. We know, of course, that people don't always do what's best for them. We also know, however, that some people are at greater risk than others based on their genetic predispositions. When those people get tested and receive counseling specific to their risk, do they end up making better healthcare decisions? That was the question behind the research of an interdisciplinary team of scientists, including Lisa Aspinwall. Lisa, on this program, we love all things interdisciplinary. Your team included genetic counselors, psychologists, dermatologists, photobiologists, I don't even know what that is, and an atmospheric scientist. What was it like working with such a diverse group of researchers? It was absolutely fascinating. Um, We were all interested in the same critical question, which is if you alert people earlier in life to their very high risk of a potentially lethal cancer, will they take steps to reduce their sun exposure? And people had very different perspectives on that question. I was fascinated by what people from each discipline brought to the question. Your study had a great acronym. You called it the BRIGHT study, which stands for Behavior, Risk, Information, Genealogy, and Health Trial. Now, I got to say, normally when people come up with an acronym for a scientific study, it's just like a mess of letters and stuff. This actually worked. You had a B-R-I-G-H-T there. I can think of a lot of diseases that you might want to see if when you examine behavior and risk information in genealogy and health, it reduces the long-term risk. Why did your group focus on melanoma? Oh, that's a great question. Melanoma is a model for any disease that has a huge behavioral and environmental component as well as the genetic one because the genetic predisposition is thought to interact with sun exposure. And to some extent, we can control the amount of sun exposure we receive. Many people don't realize this, but the gene that predisposes for familial melanoma is as penetrant as the genes for breast and colon cancer. 
but you don't hear about it. No, you don't. The reason for this is that people really questioned whether it would make a difference to inform people about their status for this genetic mutation because the medical management doesn't differ. So if you're a member of a high-risk family, which is defined by having three or more first or second degree relatives with melanoma, you're already advised to stay out of the sun to examine yourself monthly for any skin changes and to get an annual exam or even a more frequent exam. So it was assumed that people would just do this. But no, they, they don't. So I suppose that it's good news that we know that these interventions that you tried work. People in the study who got counseling were more likely to make decisions that reduce their risk. And people who were tested and learned they had a genetic mutation that increased their risk of skin cancer made even better decisions. How big of a difference did it make? One of the main things we were looking at was a laser-based measure of how tan people were. It's called reflectance spectroscopy. So it's shining a laser onto the skin under controlled conditions and measuring how much light comes back. The less tan you are, the more light comes back. We were able to find objective differences in people's skin color measured by laser that were about the magnitude of one skin type. That's a demonstrable effect over a one-year period. The big question everyone wants to know is, can you show a lower rate of melanoma? That would require a study with many more participants than the 128 that we had. Like you said, we have to look at this long term. But even if long term there's a small effect, that means lower rates of cancer. It means delayed onset of cancer. It means some people not getting cancer at all. It means people living more years of their lives without this disease. Proactive prevention so much better than reactive treatment, right? Absolutely. And when we're talking, I'm glad you mentioned age of onset, because that's one of the things that's the hallmark of familial cancer is not only more people developing the disease, but people developing it earlier in life. And that's why the impact of our intervention on sun protection and also screening behavior is important. So for melanoma, if you don't find the disease in time, outcomes can be very poor. There's a 15% survival rate over five years, but that number skyrockets to 91 or 92% with early detection. And let's talk about the psychology behind this. It seems like this all makes sense, that people who know their risk make better decisions, that people who get more information make better decisions. But we actually know from quite a bit of social science and psychological research that having more information alone doesn't always lead people to make better choices. Can you talk about the importance of the counseling aspect of this study? One of the main things we were funded to do in this study by the National Cancer Institute was to compare two ways of getting high-risk information, to get at that question psychologically, what made this more motivating to people to reduce their sun exposure? So one set of families is known to carry this P16 mutation that carries the very high risk for melanoma. The other set of families has an equivalently high rate of melanoma in the family, but we know from prior testing of their relatives that they don't have the gene. So those folks get the same high-risk odds and all of the same information about protecting themselves from the sun and doing screening, all of the same education about melanoma, but no test. So we're able to isolate what it is about the test itself, perhaps the certainty it conveys, that helped people prioritize it. In addition to all the fancy lasers, we have self-report measures of things like motivation to reduce sun exposure, making managing your melanoma risk a priority. All of those things were higher in people who got that positive genetic test result than in people who received exactly the same education but without the test result. There seems to be something uniquely motivating about a genetic test result, and that's what we're trying to understand. Because genetic mutations are often inherited, there is an important parenting aspect to this, too. Can you talk about that? 
One of the main reasons that people participate in genetic research, we've seen this in surveys of our own participants and in some really wonderful work done in Australia, is that they want to contribute to science and they also want to do something that will help their kids. In this case, we had so many parents asking about testing for their kids once they had tested positive that we applied for and got a grant to offer melanoma genetic testing to kids ages 10 through 15. Normally, you wouldn't want to have children undergo genetic testing, and so ethical guidelines there say you'd only do so if there's something you could do differently and do better. Your melanoma, again, is a model for these families knowing that I have to be careful with all of my children, but especially this one. Assuming that we continue to see this effect, the testing and counseling leads to better health outcomes, I'm wondering how will that inform the way that you think medicine should be done? I think we need to learn a lot more. For example, with melanoma, as with colon cancer and breast cancer, the risk is really high. But most people who are interested in genetic testing wouldn't carry a familial risk that high. They might get direct-to-consumer testing that would be a variety of smaller risks, but we don't know if these smaller risks will be as motivating. We don't know where the tipping point is about how high the risk has to be, how amenable the risk is to your own behavior. Nobody knows where that cut point is. That's Lisa Aspinwall. Her team's examination of the ways in which genetic testing and counseling can help people make better lifestyle decisions when it comes to melanoma was published in the journal Translational Behavioral Medicine. Lisa, can you listen in for a bit as I chat with our next guest? I'd love to. The prevalence of peanut allergies among children in the United States appears to be on the rise. A study by food allergists at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York showed a threefold rise from 1997 to 2010. Another study from the Feinberg School of Medicine showed another 21% rise from 2010 to 2017. This isn't a small concern. People who are allergic, who consume peanuts, can experience itchiness, swelling of the tongue and throat, a drop in blood pressure, rapid heart rate increases, fainting, nausea, vomiting, and in some very sad cases, death. But we live in a nutty world in more ways than one, and eliminating the risk of exposure is really hard, maybe impossible. And that's why a team of researchers has developed a no-fuss immunotherapy that may help protect people with peanut allergies. Edwin Kim, we heard about some research into a similar method of building tolerance through a swallowed dose of medication, which required a bigger dose and thus may come with a few additional side effects. The route that you studied is sublingual. Why does that matter? What you were talking about is what's called oral immunotherapy, the idea of actually eating the food to your stomach to access the immune system. But in our case of sublingual, what happens is that that food is actually just held in the mouth and can have direct access to the immune system through there and doesn't actually need to be digested and absorbed. And so we hope that with a much smaller dose, you can get a more potent effect. Can we talk briefly about how immunotherapy works against allergens? Sure. What we end up doing is giving very, very, very small amounts of whatever that person may be allergic to. And that can be food in this case, but it could also be pollen or even uh, venom like bee stings. We try to find a dose that would be big enough that the immune system can recognize it, but not so big that you have an outward reaction or symptoms. And then we slowly step that up to whatever our target dose would be. And in that process, what we hope is that we make the immune system much less reactive or hopefully fully tolerant where there are no symptoms at all. This is like building up the body's immune system like we build up a muscle with exercise. That's exactly right. What made you want to tackle peanuts? Really, food allergy, generally speaking, is what fascinated me because it's so intertwined in our lives. I mean, this is what we do every day for nutrition, but also socially. 
I was very curious about why the immune system would you know, go haywire, essentially, and overreact to this. Peanut became my big interest because it's really seen as one of the more severe allergies. And unfortunately, what we know for peanut allergy is the majority of people will not outgrow it. Peanut allergies, I don't know, like maybe it's just me, but they feel more sad, right? Because peanut butter is such a big part of our lives. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are a big part of our upbringings for a lot of people in the United States. People care about this allergy. That's right. And, And again, it goes back to the social aspect of food. I think when it comes to peanut, especially with childhood, many people have memories of peanut in childhood, whether it's that peanut butter jelly sandwich that you talked about or thinking it's October, Halloween, when the kids go out and they're collecting all their candies. And peanut is a big part of many candies out there. And so it just has sort of an elevated importance. Now, the effects of the study that you did are pretty exciting. It was a relatively small sample of kids, 37 of them, but it was really quite protective. 86% of your study subjects were able to eat the equivalent of two or three peanuts without significant reaction after treatment. A third of the kids could eat the equivalent of up to 20 peanuts. That's big. Yeah, and so, of course, I think the goal of all of us studying food allergy is going to be a cure. Anything we can do to just make it go away. Unfortunately, at this point, we're not quite there yet. But what we think we have found is through the different types of immunotherapy, so, of course, the sublingual that I've been studying, but also the oral that you discussed earlier, the hope there is that if we can just make the people less reactive, so it takes more peanut to actually cause a reaction, then perhaps at least when folks are out there in their daily lives, if they happen to get into some of that food by accident, that it wouldn't be enough to cause a reaction. For a peanut, it takes very, very little to cause a reaction. So the estimates are maybe a third of a peanut kernel or even less than that to cause a reaction in most people. And so although two to three peanuts may not sound like a lot, that's almost 10 times what it would take normally for someone to have a reaction. Given that people with peanut allergies are often so sensitive, as you were just mentioning, and I do know that all of this study is being administered in a very safe environment, but giving children peanut proteins has got to be kind of the scary part of the trial, right? Absolutely. When I introduce new people in the lab or new researchers to what we do, there's always sort of a pause of, you're doing what? (laughs) And especially because we're doing it to children. Most of our research does involve having to prove someone is allergic up front, so that may involve giving them actually what they're allergic to and watching a reaction unfold. We have learned over time of how we can do this safely. It does take a lot of discussion, a lot of counseling, and it's not for everybody. It's got to give you as a researcher just so much respect for the people who volunteer to do this kind of work on behalf of, well, like millions of people, really. Oh, absolutely. The risk that we just talked about is tremendous, but even the number of visits and the number of forms and diaries and all the stuff we ask them to do, you know, I think there is a very, very altruistic part of the vast majority of these people. I mean, yes, they're trying to get a benefit for themselves and for their family, but it's very clear that they are at the same time really interested in trying to make life better for everybody else who's living with the same allergy. Now, there's still plenty of work left to do before this is kind of ready for prime time. What are the next steps that need to be taken before children everywhere can begin to be administered this treatment if it proves to continue to be effective? So our sublingual treatment itself in a few studies now seems to show the same level of potential. So we're excited about it, but just like you suggested, it really needs to be bigger. We need to be able to do this in a large study to just show that there is not sort of a, a bias or some sort of fluke effect that we're seeing here, but that this is a true benefit. 
But I do want to shift gears to what you mentioned earlier about this oral treatment, which is, in this case, peanut flour that people eat into their stomach. This has been sort of advanced to the U.S. FDA, and recently there was an advisory committee meeting that was very positive for it. So we are kind of holding our breath and keeping our fingers crossed and toes crossed that there may be sort of the first treatment for food allergy that can get out there. Once that can happen, they would validate what we're doing for treatments and hopefully open the floodgates for many different options for patients. Are there other allergens that you'd like to tackle with this same sublingual approach? Absolutely. So when it comes to common food allergens, milk, egg, peanuts, tree nuts, fish and shellfish, as well as wheat and soy, these eight foods make up probably about 85 to 90 percent of all the food allergy that's out there. When you think about that list, holy cow, I mean, how do you avoid this stuff? And you can imagine how difficult life can be trying to live with this. So I think if we can very quickly get this going for peanut, but then shift gears and get this out there for these other foods, we can have a tremendous impact on families and patients. That's Edwin Kim. His team study of the effects of long-term sublingual immunotherapy on children with peanut allergies was recently published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And now it's time for my favorite part of the program. Edwin, this is psychologist Lisa Aspinwall. And Lisa, this is pediatric allergist Edwin Kim. Good to meet you. Hi, Lisa. The way people find out about peanut allergies, the way we find out about just about any allergy for that matter, is that we get exposed and we have a reaction. But researchers in Canada recently pinpointed a gene associated with peanut allergies. And so I'm wondering how far you both think we are from a world in which parents know their children's risks for these sorts of things before finding out the hard way. And if that happens, how does that change things for us? What we don't know is how many risks people are willing to entertain and act on at any one time. Much of direct-to-consumer testing now lists all kinds of minor things that we were never worried about before. For each of us, will there be a list of 300 things? The top eight allergens idea was fascinating to me because then you're focusing on these major sources. I think people won't take action on the set of 300, but could perhaps tackle three to five. I would totally agree with Lisa. I think on the surface, it initially sounds like a wonderful thing, and especially if you think about the behavior changes that Lisa had talked about with an understanding of a positive test, but you worry that when it's too many things that it's going to dilute out the effect, and suddenly it just becomes things that they kind of park in the back of their brain but don't actually take action on. So if it's going to move forward, really finding a way to identify what maybe the more important test Both of you are working on sort of like the leading edge of research that can really have a big impact on people's lives. Do you feel like you're racing against the clock in a lot of ways? I absolutely feel this on a daily basis for a couple of reasons. The first one is actually I'm the father of two allergic kids. So selfishly, of course, for myself, I would love to be able to advance this rapidly to help them. But even just in the clinic, every day I get asked, okay, this looks good. When's it coming? When's it coming? And, you know, when you see your own internal data that just looks so positive, you you badly want to get it out there. And you have to take that pause to just realize, okay, we need to do it the right way. And the last thing I want to do is try to push something out there that's not quite ready or not quite safe. But it is a struggle that I go through on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. In my case, what we're treating people with is information. And again, the idea is the medical recommendations are the same. Limit your sun exposure, perform early screenings. What we're hoping is that for the families that don't carry the P16 mutation, that geneticists will be able to figure out what does cause the high rates of familial cancer for these folks. So if we could speed that up, it would be great. 
I'm wondering if for you, Lisa, there's some frustration in knowing that the information is out there and widely available for how all of us can protect ourselves from sun exposure. But I'll bet like walking down the street during the summertime, you, you probably cringe a little, yeah? Absolutely. Up another tank top, no hat, shorts. Nope, 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 nope. People really don't appreciate the effects of altitude on sun exposure as well as, as time of day. What makes it interesting is that people have many beliefs about the influence of sun on their health, and most of those beliefs are positive. So when we think about educating people, you have to ask, why are people not protecting themselves? Do they believe that a certain amount of sun is healthful, for example, for vitamin D? When there are other sources, do people think that they're protecting themselves with a base tan? No, that's actually skin damage. For many people, being in the sun produces feelings of well-being. And so people say, well, how can it be bad for me? I feel great when I'm in the sun. We actually have studied what are these attitudes about sun exposure. And what we find is that people are really ambivalent. They don't want to be in the sun any less, but they're starting to appreciate that it's bad for them, either cosmetically or in terms of their physical health and cancer risk. You were listening in as I was chatting with Edwin earlier. Did you have a question that you wished that I had asked, or was there an observation that you made, a, a connection between what you guys do? Oh, absolutely. I'm interested when you're counseling patients or introducing the study to them, what is people's mental model for allergies? That's a wonderful question. I spend essentially the entire time consenting a patient talking about risk because what's fascinating is when patients are coming in for these studies, they know what's involved with it. And first of all, I think they have a probably somewhat exaggerated sense of what the risk of an actual fatal outcome is. And then number two, they may have an exaggerated perception of what the benefit from the treatment is. You'll have a parent that comes in that's convinced that their child, if they're in the room with peanut, will die, and this is the only treatment that will work for them. And so clearly, in my mind, that is not informed consent. And so I spend the entire time talking about all the things that could potentially happen with these treatments that may not necessarily be positive or, you know, straight up be negative. But it is something that is very, very important for us to talk about, and it does remind me that the patient education piece, even separate from any of these clinical trials, is vastly important. And when these treatments hopefully do get out to the public, we can't skimp on that. A child might look and say, well, my friends can have peanut candy bars. Why can't I? Do you have a sense of what people's theories are or models are for why they are uniquely at risk or why they may have an allergy but a parent does not? There's a couple levels to this. So when I think about the parents, there are all kinds of theories that folks have had and whether it's going to be something has you know, contaminated the food supply or somehow been changed, genetically modified. Is there something with antibiotics? A lot of folks, researchers and patients alike, have been very concerned about gut health and the microbiome that you hear about all the time. And so have we done stuff in our culture that has messed up that balance between the good and the bad bacteria, somehow setting us up to become more likely to become allergic? And what I tell my patients is at this point, we really don't know. And so any theory they have, I say, well, it's on the table because we're still trying to figure that out. When it comes to children, though, they feed off of the parents. It could be that some parents are deathly afraid of death, that they think that their child is going to be that one, thankfully rare, but that one person who may die from peanut allergy. And you can imagine sort of how that will translate into the behavior of that child. They will become very, very anxious and very scared and definitely see themselves as very separate or different versus another family that may somehow try to normalize and try to make that child feel like everybody else except this one little thing that they have to watch out for. Now, there's going to be good and bad to both sides of those because you don't want someone who is not taking the necessary precautions. But on the other hand, you may not want one that is paralyzed by the precautions. 
Lisa, you've seen the impact that certainty of risk can have on people's decision-making around their risk. From a psychological point of view, what is the impact of uncertainty of risk and uncertainty of reason for a disease? Oh, it's huge. Um, There are wonderful theories of what's called illness coherence, which is how do we make sense of an illness and what causes it and what implications does that have for how we prevent it or treat it? What I would be very curious about in the allergy context is, do parents' theories about what caused the allergy make them more or less accepting of the different solutions that are being offered? Well, we like things that match. So if there is a medical problem, we think it needs a medical fix. This becomes interesting when you think of mismatches, like diabetes is a medical problem, but it can have a behavioral fix for type 2 diabetes. At the basic level of how people understand a cause and what they believe will be effective and what they're willing to do really depends on this overall coherence of cause for onset and cause for offset of an illness. Edwin, that's kind of what you're seeing in your trials, right? Is like people being willing to undergo the process of being part of a study based on what they perceive as their risk. That's exactly right. And kind of speaking to what Lisa just mentioned, I think it's a fascinating concept and something that we're going to learn very quickly, I think, over the next few years, because, uh, again, the treatments that we're currently promoting are fairly, I guess, natural, meaning peanut flour, it's a food, uh, peanut extract or liquid that we're doing sublingually. Again, it's it still feels like a food versus there are a lot of these injectable biologics that are trying to change the immune system. And some of these other treatments that may be coming down the pipe. And it would be curious to see which type of patients sway one way or the other and what drives that behavior. Edwin Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Indisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Lisa Aspinwall, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. And if you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.